Tonight we're going to move forward in the book of Acts. If you'll take your Bibles, if you brought them, and turn to Acts chapter 3, we'll start in verse 11. I'm going to preach through the 19th verse. In God's Word we, we read in verse 11, While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran towards them in what was called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in His name, His name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did by what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that His Messiah would suffer, He has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Tonight, we're going to unpack these verses. I'm going to do my best to, to, to make it through the first several verses highlighting um, what I feel God would have us to see in this scripture tonight. And we're going to land on verse 17 for a while and move right into verse 19 uh, as we close this sermon. So let's go back to verse 11 and let's look at what that says. It says, while he was holding on to Peter and John. Now, he was the man who had been lame from birth for 40 years, sitting at the, the gate called Beautiful at the temple in Jerusalem, begging for, for alms and, and asking for handouts, completely insufficient. Peter and John had entered uh, into the temple complex, their paths had crossed. The lame man had asked Peter and John for, for some money, some gold or silver, and Peter said, I don't have gold or silver, but what I have in the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And then Peter reached down into that man's life. He took him by the hand and he pulled him up. And that's a beautiful picture of, of the gospel and how Jesus Christ comes into our lives. He sees us where we are when we cross paths has with Jesus. He doesn't tell us to stay where we are and to feel good about it. He tells us to rise up out of that situation. He tells us to rise up out of our sinfulness and he tells us to stand in newness of life as a new person with new abilities empowered by the Spirit. And now in verse 11 we see that this man is holding on to Peter and John. As we live this life as new and growing Christians, we are going to experience aspects of life that are new and challenging. This man had never walked before. It is only logical that even though he was made strong in his feet and ankles, that his balance would be a little off at first. Can you imagine sitting at the beautiful gate in the temple complex for 40 years wondering what it's like to walk? 
wishing that you could just get up and go and not have to have somebody take pity on you and carry you. To be able to work for yourself and to provide for yourself. The only appropriate thing for this man to do is to lean on the strength and experience of someone who had been walking far longer than himself. Peter would have been in the wrong had he brought healing into this man's life by the power of Jesus' name, only to abandon him to figure out the mechanics of walking all on his own. And so we see this beautiful picture of the fellowship of believers, of, of, of an older um, man in the faith, Allowing a younger man in the faith to cling to him, to, to ask the questions, how do I live this life? How do I behave as a Christian? How do I study God's word? And that's what we're seeing is this man is literally learning how to walk. He's been given the power to do so. Now he's got to learn how to use that power. And, and as, as young Christians, as new believers, as, as, as people who are, 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 are young in, in, in the physical life and the spiritual life, you've got to find someone to cling to, to hold on to. <coughs> Excuse me. And I want to sympathize with you because I know that we do not have enough men and women in the church today who are willing to let someone younger hold on to them. But that's, that's the way we see it happening in this verse. Verse 12 we see that, that it moves on and says, When Peter saw this, they, he saw that all the people were greatly amazed and they were running towards uh, what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The Holy Spirit has afforded Peter yet another opportunity to preach Jesus to the Jews. The first thing Peter does is get their attention. And then he directs their attention to the object of his sermon. Peter rhetorically asks the question, Why are you so amazed that God has brought miraculous healing to this man? He deflects the suggestion that it was because of, of his or John's holiness that the man was healed. And then he leads right into giving Jesus the credit for what had happened. And I want to go back. He asks, why are you amazed that the God of Israel has performed a miracle? Have you forgotten the, the, the stories that, that our tradition has, has raised us up in? Of the parting of the Red Sea. Of the, of the miraculous events that happened in Egypt when God brought us out of slavery. Of Elijah calling down fire from heaven to, to prove God before the priests of Baal. Of Gideon having an army of 32,000 shrink down to just a few hundred and defeating a much larger, more powerful army of Joshua and the walls of Jericho crumbling before the commands of God. We... Peter is, is reminding them, he's saying, my brothers, why are you so amazed that God is still working miracles? And then in verse 13 we read, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. 
the God of our fathers. The same God who's doing a work in Peter's life is not, is he's the same God that these Jewish listeners in the temple had known about their whole lives. He's associating himself with his brothers, his Jewish brothers. He's saying, the God of our Father, fathers, has glorified his servant. Peter then begins to indict the Jews and what they had done by crucifying Jesus. First, he establishes that the same God they worshipped for centuries was the God who had given the name of Jesus power to heal. Then he uses very intentional language to point out that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He says that God, that the God of their fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now let's talk about that word servant for a while. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets we see claim that the coming Messiah would be a servant of God. We see this most explicitly in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 42 where we read, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. For those who may have been present at Jesus' baptism, they would have remembered that the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, accompanied by the voice of God breaking into their world, saying, This is my beloved Son or servant in whom I am well pleased. After asserting that Jesus was the servant Isaiah and the other prophets had spoken of, he then applies the charge, he says, even though Jesus was the servant God had glorified, you handed him over to Pilate, a pagan. This is interesting. Because Peter is bringing up the fact that, that a Roman official saw more of the guiltless character of Jesus than the very people who had been looking for the Messiah for ages. And when he gets there, a pagan recognizes more of, of the guiltless character of Jesus than the exact people who, who were looking for him to come. And then he says, you demanded that Jesus be crucified. In verse 14... In verse 14 we see there he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. Whew. Now I want you to know that, that uh, Peter is not worried about how many people are going to meet him at the back of the church and shake his hand and tell him how good of a sermon he preached. That is not on Peter's mind. He's not looking for any, any uh, well that was a really good sermon preacher, you really got me this week. Because this is why. Because the Jesus that the Jewish people had crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal to be disgraced. Peter, he charges the Jews of denying this Jesus who was the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. Peter is really ruffling some feathers. Holy and righteous in the Jewish context are terms reserved for God alone. 
Peter is literally saying to the Jews, in denying Jesus, you have ultimately denied the God of your fathers. The God you say you know so well and serve. And to make the matter worse, you demanded that a murderer be released in exchange for the holy and righteous one. Peter is making a painful point that the Jewish people had essentially accepted a murderer and turned their God over to the godless to be crucified as a criminal. In verse 15, he says, You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. If verse 14 wasn't wasn't painful enough or troubling enough, Peter, Peter further stabs the truth home that they killed the source of life. What a claim. What a charge. In exchange for one who takes life, you have given the one who has created all life. You know, I believe that we should be able to see ourselves in this. So many times we choose destruction and death over the source of life. We foolishly enter into dangerous behavior and sinful relationships and choose these things over the abundant life Jesus provides. We cry out for money, entertainment, popularity, social acceptance, sex, and endless other things while we push Jesus further and further out of our lives until one day we realize that we have all but crucified the source of life all over again. What a depressing sermon so far. Up to this point, all Peter has done is paint an ugly and dim picture of the state of the Jewish people. He has heaped guilt and condemnation upon their heads. They are without excuse. They cannot deny what they had done. They had killed their Messiah. However, Peter's sermon takes a sharp turn from grim to grace. You killed the source of life, he says, whom God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. Verse 16, he says, By faith in his name, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of Of all of you. Because Jesus is not dead. Because God raised him from the dead. Because Jesus is God's glorified servant. Because Jesus is the source of life. Peter can boldly and accurately set the record straight. As to how this man was healed. Remember Peter is preaching this sermon in the context. Of a miraculous healing. One that has caught the attention of thousands of people. The explanation is the power of Jesus' name. His name. Not that we think, uh, not not what we think when we think of the word name, but what the Jews thought of when they heard the word name. Name meant person. A person's name told you who that person was and what they did. It was was more than an identifier of, of of a physical remembrance of who that person was. It literally told you Everything that person was. 
The name of Jesus holds with it the power to perform amazing miracles. Jesus' name literally means Yahweh saves. And what greater miracle is there than that of the power to turn sinners' hearts to love and serve a holy God? It is only in this name of Jesus that anyone can place their hope. In a couple weeks, we'll see, as we move, continue to move through the book of Acts, we'll see that in a couple weeks, Peter asserts that, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. And so Peter is pointing out that, that salvation is offered through the name of Jesus. That, that your entire life trajectory can be altered from sinful rebellion against the Holy God to love and service of that Holy God. And you can be made one in that, in that, in that power of Jesus' name. You can be made one with God in relationship, in unity with God's will. Peter makes it perfectly clear that the risen Jesus, God's glorified servant, has provided the power for this miracle. Try to imagine what the Jews were thinking for a moment. Many of them had witnessed Jesus being crucified. They were certain that He had died. Surely some of them had heard the rumors that the body of Jesus had been removed from the tomb. Speculation and theories of what had happened were surely a hot topic of daily conversation. Then, here is Peter performing miracles in the name of this Jesus. Could Jesus have really been God? How else can we explain what took place at Pentecost with the miracles of the languages? How else can we explain the sudden conversion of 3,000... Fellow Jews, how else can, can we explain the healing of this man who had been lame from birth? What if Jesus really was the Messiah? And then in verse 17, this is where we come to Peter's brilliant knowledge of his audience. And we're going to camp out here for just a few minutes. Listen to what he says. He says, and now brothers, brothers. I know you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. What did they do in ignorance? They killed their God. What a mistake. Remember Jesus, as He hung on the cross, what did He ask of God? He asked God to forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even in His last moments of pain and suffering for the sins of the world, Jesus provides grace, and Peter is extending that offer of grace to his listeners. It is important to understand why Peter uses the words, you did it in ignorance. To understand why this would be so meaningful to the Jews and to understand why it is so meaningful to us today, we have to go back to Numbers 35. Numbers in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers chapter 35, starting in verse 9. We, we see outlined for us an aspect of Jewish law that serves as a beautiful illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what it says in Numbers chapter 35 verses 9 through 15. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, designate cities to serve as cities of refuge for you, so that a person who kills someone unintentionally or in ignorance, may flee there. 
You will have the cities as a refuge from the, avenge, from the avenger. So that the one who kills someone will not die until he stands trial before the assembly. The cities you select will be your six cities of refuge. Select three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities will serve as a refuge for the Israelites and for the foreigners or temporary resident among them. So that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Did you catch that? In the Jewish culture, there had been set up a safe haven for people who had unintentionally killed someone. Peter says uh, he knows the Jews killed Jesus out of ignorance. And Jesus said that, that, they, that uh, he knew they were doing it out of ignorance as well. That they didn't know what they were doing. So can you see how Numbers 35 is helping to, us to understand the gospel? Listen to an illustration provided by Charles Spurgeon and, uh, and see if you can see how the work of Jesus Christ has provided for us a city of refuge. And I'll go ahead and warn you, um, I've, I've changed some of the wording of Spurgeon, uh, just a few at the very beginning. Uh, so, so if you want to look this up later, uh, you're, you're going to notice that I did change some of the words because I felt that they might be hard for us to understand. Um, this is what Spurgeon says. He says, You must allow me to paint a picture for you. Imagine a man in the field. He has been at work. He has taken a sharp tool in his hand to use in some part of his work. Unfortunately, instead of doing what he desires to do, he strikes a companion to, of, of his to the heart, and he falls down dead. You see the poor fellow in horror, with horror in his face. He is a guiltless man, but oh, what a misery he feels when he gazes upon the corpse lying at his feet. A pain shoots through his heart, such as you and I have never felt. Horror, dread, desolation. Yes, some of us have felt something similar to it spiritually. But who can describe the agony of a man who beholds his companion lifeless by his side? Words are inescapable of expressing the anguish of his spirit. He looks upon him. He tries to lift him up. He determines that he is really dead. What does he do next? Do you see him? In a moment, he flies out of the field where he has been working and runs along the road with all his might. He has many weary miles before him, six long hours of hard running. And as he passes the gate, he turns his head, and there is the man's brother. He has just come into the field, and he sees his brother lying dead. Oh, can you conceive how the manslayer's heart palpitates with fear? He has a little start upon the road. He just sees the anger of, or the avenger of blood with red face, hot and fiery, rushing out of the field with the sharp tool in his hand and running after him. The way lies through the village where the dead man's father lives. How fast the poor fugitive flies through the streets. He does not even stop to say goodbye to his wife, nor to kiss his children. But on, on he speeds for his very life. The relative calls to his father and his other friends, and they all rush after him. Now there is quite a troop on the road. The man is still flying ahead. There is no rest for him. Though one of his pursuers may pause for a while or turn back, the others still track him. There is a horse in the village. They mount it and pursue him. If they can find any animal that can assist their swiftness, they will take it. 
Can you not conceive of the manslayer crying, Oh, that I had wings that I might fly to the city of refuge. See how he spurns the earth beneath his feet. What to him are the green fields on either hand? What are the babbling brooks? He stops not even so much to wet his lips. The sun is scorching him, but still on, on, on he runs. He casts aside one garment after another, still he rushes on. And the pursuers are close behind him. He feels like a poor deer hunted by the hounds. He, he knows they are eager for his blood. And that if they do but once overtake him, it will be a, a word, a blow, and he will be a dead man. Watch how he speeds on his way. Do you see him now? A town is rising into sight. He perceives the tower of the city of refuge. His weary feet almost refuse to carry him further. The veins are standing out on his brow like whip cords. The blood spurts from his nostrils. He is straining all his power to the utmost as he rushes on. And he would go faster if he had any more strength. The pursuers are after them. They have almost clutched him. But see and rejoice. He has just reached the outskirts of the city. There is the line of demarcation. He leaps it and falls senseless to the ground. But there is joy in his heart. The pursuers come and look at him. But they dare not slay him. The knife is in their hand. And the stones too, but they dare not touch him. He is safe. He is secure. His running has been just fast enough. He has managed to leap into the kingdom of life and to avoid a cruel and terrible death. Peter is pointing out to his Jewish listeners and God is explaining to us here tonight that Jesus is our refuge. The Jews were guilty of ignorantly killing their Savior. And while we are guilty of ignorantly refusing the gift of eternal life. Again, Peter shouts to his audience, and I shout to you tonight, Repent! Run to Christ! Realize that, that you are guilty, and without seeking salvation in the name of Jesus, you will be punished. See, if the man in the story had not fled to the city of refuge, by Jewish law, the avenger could have killed him. Even though it was an accident, the killing had occurred. Someone had died and a penalty, a penalty had to be paid. The unfortunate man's only hope was to flee to the city of refuge. It's, it's important that we understand that, that when, when a man made it to the city of refuge, he was allowed to stay there. He, he, he was protected. He was safe. But, but see, even if he was found innocent, there was still a blood guilt. There was still the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. But since the man didn't commit the, the crime or, or didn't commit the, the manslaughter um, out, of, out of hate or anger or intention, he was allowed to stay there. And he had to stay there. If he left the city, then, then the avenger could kill him. And the avenger would be justified. So, so the, the, the man who, who, had, who had committed the, the homicide, the, the, not the homicide, the manslaughter, the unintentional killing of another human being, he stayed in the city of refuge until the high priest died. 
And, and according to the Jewish law, the high priest's death released, released the people in the city from their blood guilt. The death of one atoned for the sins of everyone. Folks, we have sinned. We have brought condemnation upon ourselves. The book of Romans tells us that the wages, that is what we have earned, what we deserve for our sins, is death. But there is refuge. Jesus Christ offers eternal life and safety. He offers provision and care. He offers companionship and acceptance. Most of all, He offers Himself. Read with me. Verse 19. Therefore repent and turn back. So that your sins may be wiped out. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When will we realize that we cannot substitute the presence of Jesus in our lives for anything else and expect to be satisfied? When will you realize that it does you no good to make gods out of your boyfriends and girlfriends? When will you realize that pornography will always lead you to feel more and more empty? When will you realize that as long as you are seeking acceptance from the people in this world, you will never discover who you truly are? All we are meant to be is, is by design found in the presence of Jesus. We are created in His image and we are never fully capable of experiencing love, excitement, peace, and confidence in who we are until we find ourselves completely given over to Jesus. We will never be fully who we were made to be until we are fully living in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for these students tonight. God, I ask you, Lord, to minister to their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would bring up in them a conviction of their sins. I pray, God, that you would, you would lay bare before them the absolute worst that they, uh, the, the absolute magnitude of their sins, but, Lord, the absolute beauty of your grace. Pray, God, that we would all be changed by the preaching of your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that, that as we leave this place, that, God, we would be changed in our minds, we'd be changed in our hearts, God, that we would be changed in our actions, that we would live more fully in the presence of Jesus, that we may more fully reflect and magnify the glory of our God. Father, I pray this for these students. I pray this, God, for myself and I ask you, Lord, that you would use what happens here tonight for your glory. That, God, we would be submissive and surrendered to your will. And it's in Jesus' name we praise you, we thank you, we love you. Amen.